Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide, lead, show us what you want us to see from all of this. And we just thank you for this opportunity and the freedom we have in this country to, to worship you and ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 10. Uh, Jesus was talking about being the good shepherd. Uh, and we talked a lot about the, the sheepfold and everything last week. And then Jesus said he takes down his life. No one takes it away from him. And then we get to verse 19. There was a division, therefore, among, again, among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, he has a devil and is mad. Why hear you? And others said, these are not the words of him that has a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? So we're going to stop right there for just a moment because this is the division that John keeps bringing up. The idea that many call Jesus a man that is demon-possessed and the rest of the people, you know, the other half of the people are saying, well, uh, a demonic, you know, demon-filled man wouldn't be able to do these miracles. And, you know, this is... To this day, this is what people have to decide about Jesus. Who is Jesus? All right? Um, and John brings it into two, one of two. He's either who he says he is or he's a, a, a devil, you know, filled with a devil. And in recent years, it's been called the, the li uh, liar, lunatic, lord, or lord, liar, lunatic. He's either who he says he is, he's an out and outright liar, or he's a crazy man or filled with a, filled with a demon. You know, this whole process has always been out there. What are we going to do with Jesus? Who is he? All right. There are people in our day and age that say, and even then, he's a good prophet. He's a good teacher. Well, that is not an option open to us because he claimed to be God. He accepted worship. You know, a good teacher or a good prophet does not take and get, accept worship. He does not, you know, he does not do those things. He does not call himself God if he's not God. So he cannot just be a good teacher. He cannot be, you know, just a good prophet, you know, because he did everything to be a bad teacher and bad prophet if that was the case. So basically we come down to the fact of, just like they said, he is either who he says he is, the Lord, the Son of God, the God himself, or he is a stark raving lunatic or, or at, at best or at worst a man filled with a demon. This was the what order that they were and people were divided just as they are today who is jesus of course in today's world we have to define who who we're talking about when we talk about jesus to start with and then we can start dealing with uh this many cults will deny that jesus was god they'll say he was a prophet or they'll ignore him altogether some people try to say he never even existed at all which is really foolish because history shows us that he existed so to say he didn't exist at, at all is really a dumb, uneducated position to be in. Uh, so you really do have to deal with who is Jesus. All right, these people were dealing with that. Here he is standing in front of him. Is he who he says he is? He says he's God. Is he God or not? And some people were willing to say, well, it sure seems like it. He's healing the blind. He's healing the sick. He's healed the lepers. Uh, he hasn't yet raised the dead. But that's coming in a, in a few chapters as we get into this. You know, and they're going, he's doing too many miracles. He can't be filled with a demon. And others saying, well, he's an actual, absolute lunatic because he's calling himself God. You know, and that must mean that he's filled with a, with, a, with a demon. So this is, even to our day, what do people say about Jesus? Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter said, you are the Christ. 
all right? Um, and so it's very important, you know, we as Christians have already dealt with that. Who is he? He is Lord and Savior and God. The rest of the world is still struggling with it because they look at it and go, man, he, he taught a lot of great things, but he, he sure said some weird things, and we don't know if we can believe those, and they're not sure who they're going to believe and what they're going to believe. And this is where the challenge comes for people to really do their research and find out who he is and what they're going to believe. And the good thing about this is, and it's been true every single time an atheist or a strong agnostic will truly look at the claims of Christ, they will come up with the conclusion that he is who he says he is, that the word of God is real. All right? This has happened more often than, than not. Uh, the most recent example of it is Lee Strobel, who was trying to prove that his wife didn't, you know, was believing foolishness and got saved. The one big four before that was, um, gee, forgot his name. Anyway, but he was challenged to, you know, challenged uh, by his friends in college. You know, these Christians seem to have something, so he went out to try to disprove Christianity. Uh, we have over and over again these groups of people that have come in Blackstone was challenged by his students to disprove Christianity, and he was a great lawyer of his day, ended up getting saved. Over and over again, people get saved when they try to dis honestly try to disprove the, the, the scriptures and, and who Jesus is because they'll find out the evidence is overwhelming. Is it 100%? No, but it is so full and so, so sure that you can almost, it's proven way, way beyond a shadow of a doubt and almost to 100%. We look at, did Jesus raise from the dead? You know, how did he do? Who was he? And we look at all the different sources, not just the biblical, but all the historical sources that don't, most of them don't say he was God. They say he claimed to be God, or they, they like to claim that he was a magician that tricked people, you know, which just validates what was, what was said in Scripture of all the miracles. So over and over again, the question is, who is Jesus? What who do you say I am is, Jesus, is the question that's going to happen. And ultimately, that's the question, the right throne judgment. You said he wasn't, wasn't God. You said he wasn't Lord. Now you get the result of your rejection. And the rest of us will be at the Bema seat of Christ and says, you, you said he was Lord. You said he was God. You're clothed with his righteousness. Welcome. And no, it, those really boils down to that is the two choices that we have. He is either Lord or he is not. And the question is, which one are you going to believe? And why would you believe it? Which is why it's so important to, you know, come now, let us reason together, says, says Isaiah. Uh, Peter says that we are to be ready always to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Over and over again, we're told, study. And Christianity really is the only, language, only religion that says reason and study. The rest of them, when you find the whole, say, well, just believe it because you need to believe it. And they're not open to critical reasoning. And when we find mistakes, they go, oh, no, you, got to, you just got to believe it by faith. You just got to believe that this is the way it is. Even the ones that ask you to meditate, what are they asking you to meditate? On whatever it says, not on questions. And this is one of the things I've had as I've grown up and been around churches. I've been in churches where they frown on questions and I'm going why why will you frown on questions God is not afraid of questions he created everything and it's very he has a logical world the scriptures are logical they all fit together very carefully and a matter of fact sometimes you have to use logic to be able to fit them together to 
to see where they, where they fit together properly. And God is not afraid of it. And I love being able to do these answers of questions because I am an analytical type person. I love science. I love mathematics. And when I look at the Bible, I'm going, it has to be true. Look at all the stuff that's in it. You know, scientific facts long before they were rediscovered by, by mankind uh, are in the scriptures. Uh, the proofs of the, of the resurrection, the proof of all these different things is so strong, not to mention the lives that are changed when Jesus Christ comes into them, into kind and joyful and, and blessed lives and not just disciplined lives and, where people are miserable. And so we got all of this thing, and the question always comes down to these three verses. Who is Jesus? Who do we say he is? Who does the world say he is? And when we're witnessing to people, everything really does come down to this very question. Who is Jesus? What are you going to do with this man who is the center of all of time? You know, time is split by Jesus' ascend, uh, descending to this world and living, living for, for 34 years. And time is split from that point. You know, in his pre-incarnation and in his post-incarnation. And all of it is split from that. And that's a pretty good thing to do when you're, when, if you didn't exist or you're not who you say you are. You know, well, this man is so important, we divide time by, by him. And so this is very important on it. And the question always comes down to, who is Jesus? And even John brings this up on several places, you know, because the whole book of John is geared toward Jesus is God, right? The book of John is the deity of Christ, very much revealed. And it's the one where we find him claiming to be being the, the Christ and being God over and over again. So we need to be able to understand this question is very important. And it still is to this day important. Because you cannot become a Christian without dealing with who Jesus is in the first place. You know, you must deal with that. We must deal that he is God, he is the Savior, he died on the cross for our sins. And then we can deal with the fact that we're a sinner, we deserve punishment, and we need that sacrifice. But it all starts with who Jesus is. And that's the most important statement that we can bring into, into this whole discussion of, of this, of Christianity. Verse 22 says, And it was at Jerusalem, and it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of Dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked to the temple of Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long do you make us doubt? If you be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, you, they bear witness to me, of me. But you believe not because you are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. All right. So Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication, which I'm not sure most of us in this room would have known what that is, but that is Hanukkah. So he was there. It's the middle of December, and, it, and, and John consider, continues, it was winter. So Jesus was in Jerusalem on Hanukkah. <laughs> All right? uh, the Festival of Lights is mentioned in one other place too, but this is a Feast of Dedication. It's in the winter. And Jesus walked in, in the temple in Solomon's porch. So Jesus has gone into the temple to worship. And 
he's going to go, go in there. And it says here in verse 24, Then came the Jews around about him and said unto him. So I just want to go around about him. Literally, they encircled him. All right? They, if you've ever been in that kind of situation, uh, uh, for some of us that are men, you know, sometimes we got encircled by a bunch of people who, you know, when, when somebody wanted to fight or build an argument up and they encircled you so that you can't get out without doing something, that's the kind of picture here. They have encircled him. And they make a very strong demand. And it's kind of interesting because we've looked already. How many times has he said who he is? And their question is, how long do you make us doubt? If you be the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, it has been very plain that he said, I and the Father are one. You know, I only do the things that I see my father do. Um, before Abraham was, I am. He's been saying it over and over again. And multiple times they have picked up stones to kill him but this time they don't ask him if he's God they ask you are you the Christ which means anointed one all right you, and in their mindset you could be the Christ without being God because you know all you have to do is be the anointed one and, and start the kingdom all right uh, the scriptures very clearly talk about the anointed one being being much more than just a leader and but you know they're asking very clearly are you the one we're looking for are you really the Christ? You've been, you know, you, you've been hemming and hawing it. Just tell us yes or no. And again, Jesus doesn't ever give an answer that is strictly yes and no. He, he comes out and he's going to tell them very closely, you know, that what it is when they listen to him. But if he had said yes immediately, then would have, they would have uh, killed him or made him king, one or the other, uh, depending on how, how they wanted it. could be any number of them. It's the Jews, probably the leaders, uh, but it could be any one of them because it literally just says Jews. So anybody, anybody in the temple. And it, you, there were, the, you know, you didn't have just the leaders trying to trap him. You also had the people trying to understand who is this. So it could very well be the lead, you know, the people, you know, because the people didn't like Rome either. They did not like the fact that they could not really do their worship that they want, that the Romans were in charge. The Romans did things that were not supposed to be done by Jewish tradition. Uh, we think of the, the ancient world as being so pure and so nice and neat, but the Greeks and the Romans paraded around practically nude. The, the slaves practically wore nothing. You did your sports activities, you know, in your birthday suit. You you know, all, all these things happened in, in nudity, which was, you know, foreign to the Jews in a practice, you know, uh, because of God's modesty and all of that. They were very modest people. They hated all of this going on around them. And that was one of the things that, and the Jews and the Romans brought in this idea of multiple gods into their land, even though they didn't make them worship, they would swear by the gods and, you know, and make fun of the Jews for being followers of the one God. Uh, it was, you know, we think of it as like, you know, you know, it was nice, easy going. It was Israel, but Israel was an invaded land and they were bringing in all of their uh, Roman ways into that land. And they couldn't really say anything because Rome was the captor. Uh, and it's kind of like our world today in America. We were formed as a Christian nation with all the morals and righteousness of the Christianity. 
and it's been chipped away at over the years, and now it's been blown away with sledgehammers and dynamite, you know, as, as fast as we're moving away from them. But that's kind of what they were going through. Everywhere they looked, there was these signs that Rome was there, and Rome was breaking up their their moral standards, and and they're upset. So it could very well be the people themselves are, you know, hey, tell us, are you the Christ? Are, are we ready to revolt against Rome and have a leader who's going to make us the center of the of, of the world and everybody is going to be ruled by by us here in Jerusalem because that's what they were looking for. It's what the disciples were looking for. They weren't looking at a savior who was going to come and rescue them from, from hell. They were looking for a military leader that was going to rise up under the power of God, the, a new Gideon or Samson or or uh, JL or any of the judges that would raise up, establish the, the kingdom of, of Israel into the uh, ruling of the world is what they were looking for. And it didn't care who it was because if you looked at Gideon, you would have never figured that Gideon was, a, was going to be a mighty man. If you looked at Samson, you would have gone, who is this that is, that is leading us? Uh, you know, all, all the different judges, if you look at them, they're, they're just people usually... You know, you'd look at him and go, and this is going to be the leader? This person? So this is why, in one sense, they, they have no problem with this. They had grown up on the stories of the judges. They had grown up on the story of David, the shepherd, who, who delivered from, from Goliath and then became a great military leader. So they had no problem with God anointing somebody to become a leader who doesn't look to be a great military leader. So they're looking at him saying, well... It doesn't quite look like, it doesn't fit the bill of a great general, but, you know, we, these are our stories. These are our history stories that, you know, that these guys come out of obscurity and then Israel is blessed because of their obedience to God. So they're asking him, so it could very well be either one. It's either the leaders, but it usually says scribes and Pharisees when it talks about the leaders. And he's in Solomon's porch, so just, I think a lot of people were gathered around him and saying, you know, we've heard a lot about you. Tell us. And they may not have known. They may not have known all these times that he said who he was. So it is quite possible that these are people that really don't know what's going on. They're, they're here for Hanukkah, the celebration, uh, the feast that's going on. Tell us, are you really? And some, many of them may not be from Jerusalem. They could be from all over the country. So it is possible that it's literally just the people. And that these people aren't looking to trap him. They just want... Oh, yeah. we're, we're looking for deliverance. Yeah, they'll keep us in suspense. Yeah. The one. yeah. You know, and Jesus said, I told you and you believe not the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness to me. He goes, I've already told you, number one. And look at the miracles. What did John the Baptist see? First, God spoke to him from heaven when he showed up to be baptized. But then when he was suffering with, are you the Christ, when he's in prison getting ready to be beheaded, he sends his disciples, and what is Jesus' answer to them? He, did still not, did, he still did not tell John the Baptist yes or no. He said, walk with me. He goes, now go tell him all that you have seen. The, the blind see, the lepers are healed, the, you know, the, you know, and he goes, all these different things. Go tell John, and so John will be <laughs> comforted because John understood the works. The works testified of God. And even for us as Christians, our works should testify of God. Not that we're going around doing mighty 
mighty, mighty deeds like Jesus did. But when we show love to somebody who doesn't deserve it, kindness to somebody that doesn't deserve it, and we have a joy in our life and all the things that we express as Christians, the world looks at us and the very first thing they think, of course, and I've said this many times, is you guys are nuts. Uh, you're, not being, you're not being vindictive. You're not, you're not, you're not attacking your attackers. You're, you, know, you seem to have joy when it makes no sense to have joy. You should be depressed and angry like we are and you're not. And, but they also are impressed by what they see when they see a true Christian. They don't understand it. They don't, they don't perceive it, but it's God's works speak. And there are many people who have gotten saved just because they watched a Christian go through hard times without responding the way the world does. And they see that love. They see that care. And Jesus says, you see my, you see my works that I do in the Father's name. They bear witness to me. So the first one is, says, I've already told you. you know, with my words, I have told you that I am the Christ. You have seen my works, which are mighty, going back to what they were saying, you know, who is he? He must be a devil or he's, or he's who he says he is. So again, he's splitting the group again. Who are you saying that I am? You've seen the works. I've said these things. And then he goes, but you believe not because you are not of my sheep as I said unto you. So it says, you believe not. You are not persuaded because you are not mine. And this is a very true statement, and I've said this many times. People will testify over and over again after they get saved. Before I was saved, I tried to read the Bible, and none of it made any sense to me. I couldn't follow it. It, didn't, it, it just seemed like a bunch of nonsense. I got saved, and all of a sudden, everything became real and alive. Why? Because now we're his sheep. We're hearing his voice when we're, when, when we're his sheep, and it's all of a sudden starts to make sense because God puts it together. And before we're hearing, before we're his sheep, we don't really see it for what it is. We don't see it as his words. So we're sitting there arguing that it makes no sense. And you know what? God's word doesn't make sense to the, to the world's mind. Do good to those who hate you. Uh, absolutely not. That's insane. Why would I even think about that? Give God the tithe of all that you possess. God, I can't even, you know, give God money. I, I can't even live on what I've got. Why would I give him money? You know, love one another as I have loved you. That person doesn't deserve love. I'm not going to love them. You know, show grace and mercy. to. Uh-uh, no way, they're too mean. But when we get saved, it's like, okay, God does this for me. I need to give it to, do it to others. All right, you know, Everything I own is God's anyway, so if I give him back part of what he, what he gave to me, it's not a big deal because it's his anyway. But we start seeing, you understand what I'm saying? We see things totally different once we're a Christian than when we're looking at it from the world's perspective. And this is what has been said over and over. For the Jews, Christianity is a stumbling block. You don't have to keep all these rules. For the Greeks, it's, it sounds like it's insanity. You know, who is going to give themselves over to a, to a god? Especially from their perspective. If you know anything about Greek mythology or any other religion, period, the god doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. You're there for the gods to play with. You know, especially from Roman and Greek mythologies, but even other mythologies. Now oh, we're a little bored up here. Let's make life miserable for that person down there. Oh, look at that. Oh, look at them running around like the chicken with their head cut off. You know, wasn't that fun to watch them, watch them respond to our, to our amusement? 
For, for, for a Muslim, they never know if they've done enough good works to enter into heaven. And that's true of every single religion. They never know if they've been good enough to please the deity. So you get the same kind of idea. Well, let's play with them a little bit. Let's see if they're going to believe in us if we do this. Let's see if we play, you know, you know we're just going to make life miserable for them just because we need, some, we need to be entertained. But for Christianity, it's real simple. We know for, for absolute assurance that none of us are good enough to go to heaven, including those of us who have been around 60, 70 years and you know, walking with God, we're still not good enough to go to heaven. It's only through Jesus Christ's blood and sacrifice for our sins that we're able to go to heaven. It's the only religion that depends on God to bring us in. All the other ones are, I have to do more good than bad so that I can maybe please the deity if I happen to do enough, enough good and Jesus is telling them, you know, you don't believe because you're not one of mine. You're not seeing things spiritually. You're seeing it through the world's eyes. And so they never did understand. And then in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. It says, my sheep hear. And even more importantly, I love this, and I know them. Isn't it wonderful to be known by God? As a Christian, we are known by God. Now, God knows them, even, even knows the non-Christians, but they don't listen to his voice. And, you know, it's not quite the same. No, this one, no, this one is literally that I am acquainted with. I am very acquainted with. Now, God knows everything, but he is acquainted with his sheep in a very different way. And he's going back to what he's been saying. I'm the shepherd. I'm the shepherd. The shepherd knows their sheep. I can almost picture the shepherd, you know, how many people in our day and age, their, their pets are not pets, they're, they're part of the family. And in many cases, that's the way it was for shepherds. They, they, they had certain sheep that had almost become part of their family. Remember when Nathan went to David and he said there was this man that had rich man who stole the, the one sheep of this man and it was like his child and you know, slept in his bed and, you know, lived inside and David got angry. Why? Because he was a shepherd. He understood that deep love for certain sheep. Maybe all the sheep. I don't know. I don't know if a shepherd could leave, you know, love all of their hundreds, you know, hundreds of sheep, but, you know, there's certain sheep that would be just really attached to them. Now, I'm not one of those people. I'm not an animal lover to that degree. I, it drives me nuts when people go, well, this is my, this is my child. This is my grand, you know. No, this is an animal. It's not a, you know. But I, I know that they think that way in this terms. Uh, and they follow me. And verse 28 says, and I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish. I love this. These people who believe you can lose your salvation... Never read what Jesus says. I give them, and if it wasn't enough, he did it twice. I give them eternal life, which means life without end. And if you can lose your salvation, then God lied to us. He didn't give us eternal life. He only gave us eternal life for as long as we were obedient enough to keep it. But over and over again, Jesus says, I give you eternal or everlasting life. Both terms mean the same thing. So if he gives us eternal life, it is not something that we can lose or even get rid of or anything else on this. So it's very important on this. And he goes, and they shall never perish. 
And then I love this one. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Jesus says, you are in my hand if you're my child. And you have eternal life and no one can take you out of the hand. Now, I've talked to people who believe you can lose your salvation. They go, well, Jesus said, well, no man shall pluck them out of my hand, but you can jump out of Jesus' hand. I'm going, well, you know what? I think I'm part of no man. I really do. You know, you've got to really stretch your imagination to think that, you know, I can jump out of his hand because nobody plucked me out of his hand. Um, Doesn't make much sense. But that also shows that they don't fully understand grace and God's mercy and how they got saved in the first place. These people that really do believe that you can lose your salvation at some point are believing in works, not in God's grace and mercy. For by grace are we saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. When we get to heaven, we will have no boasting. Well, you know, God, you are just so lucky that I came into your, into your, into your, into your uh, possession. You know, you, I don't know how you could have done much of the stuff that you did if it wasn't for me being down there and being such a great Christian. And God's going to look at you and go, who, where did you get so deceived? You're here by my grace, my death on the on the cross and my resurrection to give you victory is the only reason that you're here. Nothing that you did matters. Now, yes, we'll have some rewards for letting him work, letting him work through us, but what we do is just a bunch of filthy rags, so God's not impressed by anything that we do. He's impressed with our availability and allowing him to work in us and through us. That is all he cares about, because if it's us, it's worthless. And he says, I'm holding you and no man will pluck you out if you're his. And if that wasn't enough, and this is one of my favorite verses on eternal salvation. My father, which gave them to me, in other words, God gave the people to Jesus, is greater than all. All right, so he is greater than all of this and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. All right, so Jesus says, I, you are in my hand, I'm in the Father's hand, <laughs> and nobody's taking you out of any, either one of our hands. Not going to get them out of Jesus' hand, and you're definitely not getting it out of the Father's hand. So even if you jumped out of Jesus' hand, you're going to jump right into the Father's hand. You know, so it doesn't matter. These people will go, well, you know, I chose him, I can, I can choose not to. No, we didn't choose him. We chose him because he first chose us. Plain and simple. We cannot accept him without him putting it in our heart to be accepted anyway. So, and they will point to the different people that, you know, say they got saved and then left the faith. Well, they either were never saved or they did not leave the faith, one or the other. Now, they may have gone to be reprobate. They may have gone into apostasy. But you know what? If they were really God's child, they're still his child. And they may have to pay, you know, pay with you know, a lot of consequences for having driven people away from him because that's the consequences of it. But they were either never his or they just are living in the wrong, wrong direction. And you know, I've said this many times, you know, most everybody has had some time of backsliding in their life where they slide back from where, where they, God has put them. And if you knew that person during their backsliding portion of their life, you would have said, wow, how can that person claim to be a Christian? But if you know them on either, either side when they returned, it's like, wow, this person is a really strong Christian. You know, we cannot judge one another, and this is the key to everything that we go through. 
If you are saved, you are saved. And it's got to be so distressing if you really buy into this idea that you can lose your salvation. You've got a problem in your life because then when things go wrong and you walk away from God, you're going to go, well, I guess I was never saved or I guess I've walked away from God. I have no hope. And that'll put you into a tailspin in a big time. But that is why grace is so important. Understanding who we are in grace, who, who we are in Christ. Because we put on the righteousness of Christ. And when you read it in the, in the, in the Greek, when it says, Paul say, saying put on, it's in the aorist tense, which means you put on and it stays on forever. Now, uh, when we talk about the putting on the armor of God, there's this, you, I've heard him a hundred times, he's, these messages about you need to put on the armor of God every day. Put on the helmet of spirit every day. Put on the breastplate of righteousness every day. Sorry, the Greek says put it on and it stays on. When God clothes you with the armor of Christ, it is on. Now I understand the whole idea of you know refresh your mind and, and keep putting it on new, but it's there. I don't have to do things over and over and over again and when you look at the armor of God, every piece of the armor of God is Jesus Christ. The breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the, the girdle of truth, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, all of that is Christ. I only put Christ on one time. When I get saved, he clothes me with his righteousness and I don't have to put on his righteousness every day. It's there. And this is the key to this understanding is do we fully understand who we are or not? You know, we are his. We are uh, adopted into the family of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are the righteousness of Christ. You know, over and over again, we've got all these things that we are the moment that we are saved. Now, we may not be practicing everything that we are, but he is stated that we are these things. And we'll be doing it again, but we did a whole series on the 53 things that happened to you at the moment of salvation. There's a lot of things that happen to us when we get saved. And we need to really understand that the biggest one beyond all those other things, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Nobody's taken us away because you've got the Holy Spirit sealing us as well. You've got the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all participating and keeping us saved because it has nothing to do with us. And any one of them is strong enough to keep us saved. And as Jesus said, if you don't think I'm enough, the Father's holding, us as what, holding both of us. And you're not getting away from it. What a beautiful picture this is. Jesus said, they're mine. And then he made the statement that they were waiting to hear, I and my Father are one. So here we are again. Another statement that I am God. I, the man standing in front of you, and the Father in heaven are one. I mean, it hasn't added the Holy Spirit into this mix yet. That doesn't really come until Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is delivered, even though he's going to talk a little bit about it before he passes away, uh, before he gets, you know. But he now said it very clearly to the people in the middle of the temple, the Father and I are one. All right, verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone you not, but for blasphemy, and because you, that you, being a man, make yourself God. 
Jesus answered, and answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If, you, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, say you of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, you blaspheme because you say I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not in me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So here we have Jesus again talking to the, the people. He says, I and the Father are one. They immediately pick up stones and accuse him of blasphemy. Again, this is one thing that even though he doesn't say, I am God, he has said, I am God, and the people know that he is saying, I am God. All right? Their reaction tells us that he just said he's God. All right? Even though he didn't use the words, I am God, he said, I and the Father am one. So I am one, the Father and I are one. And they understood that whole idea of intimacy of one and going, okay, you just claim to be God. And that bothers him. They were ready to take him as Christ, you know, the anointed one, the, the Messiah, the one that was going to make Israel the, the head of everything. But to call himself God bothers them. And Jesus, you know, Jesus just, you know, you got to picture how cool this is. How cool he is in the midst of this. They're all picking up stones. Now we're, we're not saying that they're picking up little tiny rocks. They're picking up stones that when they throw them at you, they're designed to kill. All right? they're, you need two hands to throw these rocks. They aren't baseballs or, or anything, softballs. These are rocks that they used for stoning. And they're picking up these and he goes, while they're all doing this, he goes, Many good works have I shown you from my father. Which of these are you stoning me for? <laughs> you know, he almost, very interesting the way he plays with them a little bit. You know, hey, you know, why, why, are, you, why are you looking at, what, what, what of my many good works are you stoning for me? I've, I've healed the blind, I've, I've cleansed the lepers, I've done all these things. Which of my good works are you stoning me for? What is he really saying? I have claimed to be God and I have shown you that I am God by the miracles that I do. You know, I've healed the blind, I've, I've uh, healed the lame, I've done, healed the lepers. Which of these great miracles are you having a problem with? Could anybody just heal? And he did more healing than anybody else in, has ever existed. Right? Prophets did healing, but it was, it was not an everyday occurrence with them. It was not a constant occurrence with Jesus. Jesus has cast out demons. He's healed people. Everywhere he goes, they get healed. Every day, something miraculously has happened. And he's saying, so what of my many good works are you, are you stoning me for? I am demonstrating that I am who I just said I was. I could not have done these if the Father and I were, weren't one. And so they're looking for him. And their answer is, uh, not for any of these good works, but because you... Being a man, make yourself God. Right, they just told us why they're picking up stones. They have understood that he just declared that he is God. Which to them is really tough. And this is the stumbling block for the Jewish people. God became a man and dwelt among us. Now, all of us think that, that would be a really strange thing anyway. Even in the you know, Greek and, Greek and Roman and, and Viking and all the different things, God becoming a man was never the way this one was. They came in as a powerful man that could do it. They were still gods. They never would make themselves a puny, 
insignificant human being without power. Jesus came without that great power. Yes, he was able to do great things. But you know, in all the other religions, those gods would come down and you didn't, didn't like what you, did, what you did. They would curse you, change you into something else. If you were nice to them, you'd, you'd get their favor. But you know, if you weren't nice to them, you know, you know, the gods got after you. <laughs> Jesus came and he says, I'm going to do these great things. And he goes, I am working on these things. He goes, and then Jesus said, and he quotes Psalm 82, 6. He goes, it is, it is written in your law, I said, you are gods. If, you, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scriptures cannot be broken, all right? He says in Psalm 82, 6, God calls, calls you gods. And that verse literally says, you are all gods. It, all of you are children of the most high, is literally what it says. So he's going, God has called you, Israel, children of God. Why are you having a problem when I say that he's my father and that we're one? All right. He's quoting scripture back at them. Every time Jesus speaks to people, he doesn't sit there and argue with them. He gives them doctrine. He quotes back the scriptures to them. He quotes these things. When I have talked to many people about Christianity, I will quote scripture and I'll have people go, well, I don't believe in the word of God. I'm go, I don't believe that Bible that you're quoting. I'm going, I understand. And I quote them another Bible verse. Well, I told you I don't believe in the Bible. I go, I understand completely. Here's another Bible verse. Yeah, well, I told you I don't, uh, I understand. Quote them another Bible verse. Why? For one thing, it's the truth. The other thing God tells us is that his word does not return void. His word is what is going to be pricking them when the Holy Spirit brings that word back to their mind later on. Our strongest weapon is the word. The loving presentation of God's word. Not, not as a sword and a club, but a loving thing. You know, Jesus just said, you know, God, God says you're all, all gods. Why are you arguing with him? And it's literally what he says in a very, he goes, whom the word of God, you know, unto whom the word of the law come and the scriptures cannot be broken. He goes, God will not break his word. So if he calls you gods, why are you having problem with me being called a God? Now he's stretching that just a little bit, <laughs> but he is making a point to them. God has already put you in a special place. He has made you one with him and now you're having a problem because I say I am one with the father. When you are already declared by the scriptures to be one with him. All right. So he's, he's kind of playing around with him. And it says, say you unto him whom the father has sanctified and sent into the world. You blaspheme because you said I am the son of God. You're having a problem with me whom the father sent in here. And you're claiming that I'm blasphemy. Now if Jesus had said I am not the son of God. Then he would have been lying. He would have been lying to them. And then he would have had a problem. Because then he would have sinned by lying. But because he said that he was the son of God, they say, well, you're committing blasphemy because they don't recognize who he is because they're not one of his sheep. It's kind of an interesting point of view. And if you've ever been there, you know what it's like to be telling the truth and nobody believes you. Because it's so improbable or so unlikely and you're telling them the truth and nobody believes you. I've had that happen on more than one occasion where, you know, well, nobody else could have done it. It must have been you. 
well, there's somebody else that had to have done it because it wasn't me. Even though nobody believed it until later on when the truth came out. So Jesus is saying to them, you know, the Father, who, him whom the Father has sanctified, set aside, you know, and sent into the world, you blaspheme because I, you, you blaspheme because I said I am the Son of God. You're calling me a blasphemer because I am admitting who I am. Now, Jesus isn't a rock in a hard place at this point because, you know, nobody's going to believe who he is because very few of the Jews ever really understood Adonai as the, as the multiple facets of God that were, were being recognized. They did not go back to the Adonai of John uh, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which is Adonai, which is a multiple, multiple, multiple God, uh, excuse me, Elohim, multiple, multiple God, uh, a plural word for the one and only God. You know, and yet, they never really understood that that plural word for the one and only God refers to the Trinity. All right? God said, let us create man in, a, in our own image. Talking to the Trinity, not the angels, but the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit talking together. Let us make, God, let us make man in our own image. Over and over again in the, in the Old Testament, we see the picture of the Trinity in a very loose way. And this is what Jesus is saying. I've been sanctified and I and the Father are one. We are, we are the same individual. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. He goes, if I'm not doing good works, don't believe me. Nowhere in Jesus' days did he sin. He only did what the Father told him. Now the scribes and Pharisees will say that he had sinned because he had broken man's traditions. And oftentimes they ask Jesus in, in one of the other Gospels, why do you violate not God's laws, the traditions of man? Because they had raised the traditions of man equal to God's law. And Jesus purposely violated the traditions of man. He never violated God's law, but he violated man's traditions over and over again. And it is kind of fun sometimes to violate man's traditions. You know, I've done that in certain churches where they, it doesn't make any sense and I'll do something on purpose just to, just to violate their little presuppositions about God and his word. And Jesus going, you know, for which of the works? If I don't do God's work, don't believe me. But if, but if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and that I am in him. Because even if you don't believe that I am who I say I am, believe the works. Now, this has got to be something we have to be very careful of because we hear these same type of ter terms in certain, certain works-based churches. Well, you know, just look at the works. If you don't see the right works, and then, you, then you reject them. Well, the problem is these were God's works. These were works that people couldn't do. All the healings, all the all the walking out of every trap that they set for him. You know, every single time he did the work of God and it stood out, which is why he's remembered even to this day. And people go, well, the only place he's mentioned is in the Bible. Wrong. Josephus mentions him. You know, three or four other historians all mention him. Now, they don't always mention him in, a, in light of this. You know, most of them will claim he claimed to be God. He claimed to be, you know, a great, you know, he was a great prophet that did miracles. One of them describes him as a magician uh, that spoke, spoke great, you know, great words. You know, 
but they all testify that he was real and there was something special about him. Now, they don't all say that he was, was God. One of them at least claims he said he was, um, which, doesn't, which validates what the, what the scriptures, scriptures tell us. But, you know, we need to understand, he said, even if you don't believe me, believe the works. Look at the works. And this is something that happens even in our day where people see the work of God going on around them and there's many times when they just cannot deny the, the change. They can't deny the change in somebody's life when they're, they want to desperately not believe in God and they look at the changed life around, you know, and the people they know and go on, I don't know how it is, but they're, they're not the same person. They are more loving. They are more kind. They are, they're, they're not using God's name in vain. They're not using drugs. They're not drinking, drinking every night. They're not playing around. I just don't know how they could be cha- so changed. God's work. There are times when people only start believing in him because they look at the life changes of the people they know. Many husbands have been won by their wife getting saved and just starting to love them. You know, not nagging them, not not criticizing them, but just loving them in a way that they had not been loved before. And no matter how mean and nasty they get, they get loved. You know, uh, people being nice to those that are abusing them and going, this doesn't make any sense. How can anybody do this? Uh, and it's so important, you know, what is it that we look, look at? Are we seeing the works of God? Are we as Christians showing the work of God so that people will be drawn to him because of the works they see? Not get saved because of our works, not that we're proven that we're, that we're saved by our works, but that God works through us. He does his works. This is what Jesus keeps saying. I only do the work of the Father. He's never saying, these are my works. He always says, these are the works of the Father. And and he could have said they're my works because he's God. But he's saying, these are the work of the Father. I only, why? Because he was an example to us of what we're supposed to do and live. If he just said, these are my works, then we'd have to figure out how to do good works. But we don't do good works. We let God work through us and it's his works that we do. Not our own work, because they would be worthless. And people see that difference in it. And then they will be drawn toward the works of God. And that is what's important for us. It's, in one sense, it's so easy to be a Christian if we would just get out of the way and let God do the work. And I've said this so many times. People going, well, I'm trying to be a good Christian. I've literally told people, quit trying. What? I've got to try. No, quit trying. Let God crucify your flesh and live through you and you will be a good Christian the way God wants you to be instead of striving and, and struggling and all of these things that are involved with it. Just let God live through you and let him crucify your flesh and quit struggling and quit trying to be a good person because your good, your good works aren't going to do any good anyway. We're saved by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. Or as Isaiah says, all your righteousnesses is our filthy rags. We are all unclean beasts that follow after our own way. You know, we're going, everything good we can do in front of God's sight is nothing. Matter of fact, we've all seen these people who pretend to be good Christians and we watch them and you know, the world laughs at them when they fail. 
and I think it's sad, you know, I, but I understand why the world laughs. Well, I knew it was too good to be true. I was waiting for you to fall, get angry at somebody or not love somebody, you know, because you're doing it in their own strength. Our own strength can only carry us so far. And we've all been there where I'm going to give up this sin. I'm going to not do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And it may last, depending if we're really disciplined, it might even last a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, everything crashes down around us because it was not a flesh crucified. It was not a work of God. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to be, that we're going to be perfect by letting God work because our flesh still gets in the way. But we then repent and we go, man, that was a dumb thing to do. God, I help, help out. And, you know, one of the greatest things that we can do is learn to apologize to those that are watching us. You know what? I was a bad example of, of, of Christ the other day. When I got mad and blew up at that person, I should never have done that. I am so sorry you, you saw that. It was not right. It was not, not what God wanted. Now, that really impresses people because one thing that people don't want to see because they know that they can't be perfect and they don't need to see a perfect Christian. Because if they see a perfect Christian, they're going, uh-uh, can't do that. But they see a forgiven Christian who doesn't make excuses for their failures. They say, you know what? I really messed up. I did not live the way God wanted me to, and it was my fault. I should not have done it. All of a sudden, that goes, whoa. There's something different about this person. They're not making excuses. They're not saying, you know, like the world, well, it's their fault. They, they, you know, if they had not said that and done that, I would not have blown up at them. You know, it's like, you know what? I, I really messed up. I, you know, I'm sorry that you had to witness that. I just, I lost my temper, and I should never have done that, and it's my fault. And they're looking like, well, that's not the way the world talks. The world is always looking for some excuse. And we've all heard it. Well, if that person hadn't cut me off and run my car off the highway, I wouldn't have gotten so mad at them. If they hadn't said what they said, I would not have exploded at them. You know, there's always this, it's really not my fault, they forced it. We need to really understand that even if it was their fault, we still responded. As we tell everybody over and over again, you know, we're responsible for our own reaction to things. Nobody is sitting there forcing me to do anything. Now, they may do a lot of things that make me want to do something, but it's still my choice to, to react the way I do. And my flesh wants to react that way, so maybe I don't have a whole lot of choice, but it's still my choice. And I need to own that it was my choice. You know, well, if, if that person just hadn't done you know, and a lot of times it's our family and they know how to push our buttons. Well, if I just do this, this, and this, they're going to go crazy. And they do this, this, and this, and we go crazy. Yeah. Yes, they forced it. Yes, they, they, they instigated it, but it was still my choice to react. All right? And this is what Jesus is telling them. It's got to be the Father's works, you know, that work through you. Verse 39, Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand, and went again beyond Jordan to the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracles, but all things that John spoke of this man were true. And many believed on him there. So here again, Jesus said, um, believe that the Father is in me and that I am in him. And he just again claimed to be God. And immediately, therefore, they sought again to take him. He'd almost pacified them with his, with, with his speech. 
And he again claimed to be God. And immediately they wanted to, they're not going to stone him in the temple. They're trying to grab hold of him, drag him outside the temple to where there'd be a pit and they would stone him in the pit. All right. Um, but they, they sought to take him and again he escaped out of their hands. It wasn't his time. They could not be able to execute him at that point. He escaped from them. And it says he went his way again beyond Jordan to the place where John at first baptized and there he abode. So he's going to go about a day's journey outside of Jerusalem and abide where John had been baptizing. And so he stays there for a while. And it says, many resorted unto him. Now, it's kind of interesting. He escapes out of their hands, but he's not hiding. All right. He leaves Jerusalem. Most of them are staying in Jerusalem. They're not going to go following him. But it's like everybody knows where he's at, or at least many <laughs> people are finding him. I think back when David is running from his life from Saul, and it says all the bad, you know, all the guys that were not not happy with Saul found David. Saul couldn't find him at all, but all the other people could find him. All right, uh, here Jesus is leaving the temple. Many find him but not as, not as direct enemies that want to kill him. And I just find this so, it's, it's kind of hilarious on one side, but it also is the same thing that when you're drawn to Jesus, you're going to be taken to him. You know, when the spirit chases after us, you know, and they, you know, it's been described as, the Holy Spirit has been described as the hound of heaven that just keeps after you and after you and after you and after you until you finally turn to Jesus. And it's like, these people, they wanted to find him and they found him. It wasn't kind of hiding in plain sight type deal. I, I'm, not, I'm not, you know, preaching at this point, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, hidden away in the caves. I'm not, I haven't gone and gotten myself lost. If you really want to find me, I'm right here. And it says, and they said to him, John did no miracles, but all the things that John spoke of this man were true. John spoke of the one that was going to heal the lepers and heal the blind and heal the lame and do all these great miracles. Now, how John knew he was a prophet, so God gave him the words. And they're going, you know, all John did was baptize. All John did was baptize and talk about this man coming after him and that he was going to do great things. He did no miracles and people flocked to John. Now, he goes to where John had been baptizing and teaching and now all the people are finding him and going, you know what? John didn't do all these things, but this man's doing everything that John said. Everything that John said would happen is being done by this man. And it says, and many believed on him there. Now we oftentimes think when we think about Jesus that you know, when he died, there was only the 12 disciples and no big deal. But Jesus oftentimes had huge crowds following him. And it, we know of at least one time when he had 5,000 following him. And now most of them were there just for the miracles. But over and over again, there were great crowds that followed. Um, Paul in Corinthians says, you know, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, go to Jerusalem. There were at least 500 there that saw him die and rise again and saw him after his death. 500. And that's the tr a core of true believers. How many others saw him? I don't know. How many others believed on him? I don't know. But Jesus had a large following. 
we had, you probably had to be very careful if you invited Jesus to your house, you were talking about at least 13 people. You know, Jesus and his 12 disciples, but wherever he went, a crowd followed. Now, you may not have all of them in your, in your you know, dining room eating dinner, but they're going to be out in your courtyard pressing in to hear what's going on. Um, you know, there were hundreds and hundreds of people that followed Jesus everywhere he went. And we always just think about the 12 disciples, but, you know, we read through this and we see crowds everywhere he went. And not everyone in that crowd was just a sign seeker. We see this statement over and over again, and many believed, and many believed, and many believed. Over and over again, we see that Jesus was getting a crowd, and this is why the scribes and Pharisees are afraid of him. You know, Jesus at any moment could have ten or 20,000 people at his beck and call. If he wanted to create an uproar and an uprising, he was having people following him everywhere. All he had to do was change his tune from one of love and care and mercy to let's throw out Rome. <laughs> and he would have had a huge you know, army at his disposal because everywhere he's going, he's drawing a crowd. And they're, and they're very concerned about that. You know, this is a man that's got the ear of the people. And if he changed his tune, then he would have had all the zealots and all the, all the brigands and everybody else coming to his side, you know, which weren't really happy with him because he taught this kindness and love thing. But if he had said, we're going to go fight Rome, all of a sudden he would have probably had 30, 40, 50,000 people in, a, in an instant. And yet he would never do that because that's not why he came. You know, and even when he talks to Pilate, at the, you know, Pilate says, you know, don't you know who I am and the authority I have? And he says, you would have no authority except to be given to you. I could call 10 legions of angels at any moment. Now, 10 legions meant that he could call an, an angelic forces equal to what Rome had. And he's going, I could call an entire army that, that you have in, in, and they'd be here and, and they're angels. You know, they're not humans, they're angels. And I don't know if Pilate fully understood that, but you know, one angel killed 187,000 people, Assyrians, in one night. Can you imagine a, 10 legions of angels? What 10 legions of angels could do? They'd wipe out humanity. And Jesus said, I could just call them. I'm, I'm laying down my life. It's my choice to give up my life. Over and over again, I am going to lay down my life. Even on this cross, it says he gave up his spirit. It wasn't taken from him. God didn't, the Father didn't snatch it away from him. He says, okay, this is it. I'm done. And I'm dying. He could have stayed alive. He was God. I don't know if he wanted to stay alive. He'd just become sin, but he, he gave up his life and suffered for mankind. And it's such a beautiful picture of who he is all the power of God that could have just unthought us you know, he holds everything is held together by Christ the very atoms that should not be able to be held together are held together science tells us it's held by nuclear force uh, what is nuclear force we have no idea I've asked that many of it, we have no idea what nuclear force is or we know that it holds everything together. The Bible tells us that everything is held together by his hand. If Jesus had just wanted to say, okay, I'm done with it, they're not worth it, 
there wouldn't have been a world to, to be saved. Because he'd have just said, okay, we're un- we'll unthink them, and they'll be gone. That's how much power he has. When he comes back at the end of the tribulation period, that battle that they're getting ready to align is over in seconds. He speaks a word and they're dead. No battle, no, no attack on him other than them training their guns or whatever they're going to do on him. And he says, okay, you're done. And they're gone. That fast. The power of God is unbelievable. He created everything in this universe. In an instant. With just a word. We can't do that kind of creation. We as humans have a creative nature, but we have to take what God gives us and reform it and redesign it into something else. But we're taking what he gave us and saying, let's reshape it. God spoke it into existence, nothing into existence. And I find it so curious when you look at the, the science that wants to say, well, you know, there was this something that was nothing and all of a sudden it exploded into everything. I go, okay, well, where did the nothing come from that exploded into, into everything in the first place? You have to have something for to even come out of anything. And, and yet they can't even explain that other than their idea of an oscillating universe. You know, and that, that makes no sense at all either. But, you know, all the answers that they come up with make no sense. The power of God is so awesome. His omnipotence, all-powerful, that he can make anything happen. And Jesus had all that power and didn't use it in, the, in his humanity. And he could have destroyed everything. You know, what control did he have over all this, especially when man would do things that deserved to be punished? And... You know, and I think about that often, especially at the trials when they're beating him and they're nailing him to a cross. All he needed is one moment of anger to slip out and everything would have been undone with just a second of time. Lord, we ask you to be with us and guide us. Help us to understand that you are God. Help us be able to show others that you are God. And we just thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23 we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5, 8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us, so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says, That if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this. God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of 
of his family. We encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.